You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. In the last two episodes, I did a deep dive into Microsoft Azure and cybersecurity first principles. In the process, I learned that cloud providers have developed a vocabulary to describe the concepts of how their services work. The ideas shared among all cloud providers are similar, but many of them have different names and offer subtle differences in capability. And in the words of my favorite stand-up comic, John Mulaney, Those don't match up at all. For this episode, I'm going to take a look at Amazon AWS and try to distinguish between the services and the concepts that are the same between AWS and Azure and how they are different. My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Let's start with some networking basics in both Azure and AWS. For both services, customers rent space on each cloud provider's network. Microsoft calls them virtual networks. Amazon calls them virtual private clouds or VPCs. The IP addresses that support these ephemeral networks are private, meaning that any virtual host within can't get to the internet and that any host on the internet can't see the virtual hosts. In order to allow access to and from the internet, cloud providers use an old legacy networking trick called network address translation or NAT. According to the Geeks for Geeks website, quote, the idea of NAT is to allow multiple devices to access the internet through a single public address. It's a process in which one or more local IP addresses are translated into one or more global IP addresses and vice versa, end quote. Amazon calls its version a NAT gateway, and Microsoft calls its version a source network address translation, or wait for it, a SNAT. And like I said last episode, how great is that acronym? I think we should hand out boxes of SNATs to all newbie cybersecurity professionals, you know, as kind of an initiation rate, and have them carry one around with them at all times, like the historic military coin tradition. When we see a newbie at a bar at DEF CON or Black Hat, we can say, hey, newbie, 
Do you have your stat with you? And if they don't, then they have to buy the first round. But, you know, I digress. Both Microsoft and Amazon had the same concept and name for organizing their data centers. A region is a physical location around the world where one or more data centers are clustered. And an availability zone, or AZ, is a logical construct of one or more discrete data centers. For both companies, each AZ has its own subnet that the customer can divide into multiple smaller subnets. Within those subnets, customers can deploy virtual workloads. Microsoft calls their workloads Azure Virtual Machines, or Azure Instances, and Amazon calls theirs Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud, or Amazon EC2. To reduce the attack surface between subnets, both Microsoft and Amazon have this idea of a simplified virtual stateful inspection firewall. Microsoft calls theirs a network security group, or NSG, and Amazon simply calls theirs a security group. For example, let's say that you have one subnet dedicated to finance and another dedicated to DevOps. Security administrators can restrict access to each subnet by IP and port, which is similar to the old hardware stateful inspection firewalls that were invented back in the 1990s. And that is a key point to remember. These security groups, these old-timey stateful inspection firewalls, are bread-and-butter technology. There's nothing fancy here. In order to connect their customers' virtual instances back to their traditional on-prem data centers, Azure has a SaaS application called ExpressRoute, and AWS has a SaaS application called Direct Connect. Storage is also a SaaS application that sits outside the customer's cloud infrastructure. Microsoft calls their storage service Azure Storage, and Amazon calls theirs Simple Storage Service, or S3. Informally, the network defender community has defaulted to calling the AWS Simple Storage Service as S3 buckets, and these have been in the security news since the initial launch of the service back in 2006. Many organizations don't configure them properly and mistakenly leave them open to anybody on the Internet, thus permitting all who care to look the ability to copy the data within. When you hear the media talk about the latest S3 bucket leak, this is what they're talking about. According to the register's Sean Nichols, as of August 2020, quote, leaky AWS S3 buckets are so common, they're being found by the thousands now with lots of buried secrets, unquote. Azure Storage has its leaky moments too, but it feels like to me we don't see as many Azure Storage leaks in the news as we do S3 bucket leaks. But, you know, I might be wrong there. The key point to remember is that both companies offer a mix of virtual infrastructure capability in supporting SaaS applications that include security tools. Some SaaS tools come with a subscription, but others you have to pay for. With their SaaS security applications, network defenders can try to orchestrate their four first principle strategies, intrusion kill chain prevention, zero trust, resilience, and risk assessment. Before I talk about that, let's go over some Amazon details that are unique to the AWS service. AWS has a notion of Network Access Control List, or NACLs, another great acronym, by the way, that we might as well throw into the box of SNATs that we're handing out to all the newbies. I mean, I'm just trying to be efficient here. These NACLs provide stateless controls between subnets. By stateless, I mean that they don't keep track of the back-and-forth communication between two endpoints. If you want a NACL rule, to block a specific IP address between, say, the finance subnet and the DevOps subnet, you have to install two rules, one to the blocked IP and one from the blocked IP. 
This is different from the security groups mentioned at the top of the show, which are stateful, meaning that you only have to install one rule in the security group to stop communications between subnets. AWS also specifically requires virtual router configuration. Just because you allow communication between subnets within your security groups and with NACL rules, you still have to insert the communication routes in the virtual router. By contrast, Microsoft Azure automatically configures the routes for the customer. Logically, then, the communications path between two AWS subnets, let's say the finance subnet and the DevOps subnet, is this. Now, this is a little complicated, but bear with me. You have to visualize the communications path if you're going to insert security rules between two subnets or two virtual hosts. So, let's start with the EC2 workload for the finance subnet, up through the security group for the finance subnet, which is optional, by the way, up through the NACL for the finance subnet, also optional, up through the router for the VPC, this is mandatory, now back down through the NACL for the DevOps subnet, optional, down through the security group for the DevOps subnet, again, optional, and finally, down to the EC2 workload in the DevOps subnet. If you want to insert a security stack between the finance subnet and the DevOps subnet, let's say a virtual firewall, you would create a third subnet, call it the security stack subnet, and adjust the router to point down to it instead of directly to the DevOps subnet, and then configure the virtual firewall to point down directly to the DevOps subnet. Whew, that was a lot, but I hope you get the picture. You have many options at your disposal to create zero trust rules. You probably don't need to use all of them, but you should develop a coherent plan and deploy them consistently throughout your virtual networks. With those AWS basics out of the way, let's see how Amazon helps us deploy our four first principle strategies. And let's start with resilience. As I said in the Azure episodes, resilience is where most cloud providers shine. They make it relatively easy to establish redundant workloads and redundant data storage in geographically separate locations. Compared to how the IT and security communities have been doing this for years with our own physical data centers, you know, the ones we own and maintain ourselves, Virtual data centers from the likes of Microsoft, Google, and Amazon take the burden of data center management off the plate. We can do it all with software using provider SaaS applications and APIs, which is probably the most compelling argument to adopt the DevOps and DevSecOps philosophies. As with Azure, Amazon logically organizes AWS into physical regions around the world and offers one or more data centers in each for customer use called availability zones. For critical workloads, as with Azure, there are many resiliency options to consider in AWS. The most compelling, from my view, is establishing redundant workloads in different regions that keep each other updated automatically, a hot-hot model, compared to a hot-cold model or even a hot-warm model. This hot-hot model provides another degree of resilience in case a data center in one region fails for whatever reason. The other region, the functional one, will just pick up the slack and, if done correctly, can scale workloads automatically until the crisis is rectified. For backups, AWS offers something called Amazon EBS snapshots that function like how traditional backup systems have worked back on-prem. They're incremental backups, meaning that the system only saves the changes since the last snapshot. AWS also offers a database backup SaaS application called Cloud Endure Disaster Recovery that continuously replicates EC2 workloads, including the operating system, 
system state configuration, databases, applications, and files into low-cost S3 buckets. For backup encryption, AWS offers a server-side encryption service, meaning that once you get the data on the backup system, the server will encrypt it. And for ransomware protection, AWS offers an immutable storage service called S3 Storage Lock. Now, once the data is stored, it can't be changed, deleted, or encrypted for a specified period of time in a write-once, read-many model. This is the old worm model from back in the day. All of these SaaS applications and infrastructure capabilities are fine. But as the AWS documentation points out, these are resiliency tools, not a resiliency solution. You still have to design the plan yourself and then implement it. According to Amazon's Mark Ryland and Quint Vandeman, one Zero Trust best practice is to apply the general purpose Zero Trust idea to workloads. Quote, if two components don't need to talk to one another across the network, they shouldn't be able to, even if these systems happen to exist within the same network or network segment, unquote. You can figure that with the AWS Security Group's SaaS application. Ryland and Vandeman point out that security groups can be used for both north-south traffic, meaning network traffic in and out of the security group, as well as east-west traffic, meaning network traffic between workloads on the same subnet. For north-west traffic between two VPCs, you can also establish a private link between them that no other VPC will have access to. You can also perform a similar zero-trust function with AWS's APIs, by installing your applications behind an Amazon API gateway and limiting who and what can access it. This also has the side benefit of providing Application Distributed Denial of Service, or DDoS, protection. Amazon does offer a web application firewall called AWS WAF, WAF, but it is specifically designed to protect web applications against attacks like SQL injection and cross-site scripting. I want to be clear here. AWS WAF isn't a next-generation firewall that you might get from one of the big security platform companies like Cisco, Checkpoint, Palo Alto Networks, or Fortinet. These vendors design their security platforms from the beginning to enforce zero-trust rules at the application layer. Rules, for example, like one allowing the DevOps team to use the GitHub application, but prohibiting the finance department from doing so. You aren't getting that done with an AWS WAF. Of course, you can't really do zero trust without a robust identity and access management system. Most organizations that have been around for a while have deployed Microsoft's Active Directory back at headquarters and in their data centers. You can use the AWS AD connector to connect AWS apps to your on-premise directory. But if you're a small organization that, as they say, has gone cloud native, meaning that you don't really have any on-prem infrastructure, you can use the AWS Identity and Access Management System as a starting point. As with Microsoft Azure, it's a really good idea to install some sort of two-person control for critical functions and to watch closely what is being done with the root accounts for AWS services. According to Lewis Columbus at Forbes magazine, he recommends that AWS administrators, quote, vault AWS root accounts and federate access for the AWS console, unquote and then audit everything with two SaaS applications, AWS CloudTrail and Amazon CloudWatch. He also says that if you haven't implemented multi-factor authentication everywhere, you should stop what you're doing right now and get that done. Those are wise words indeed. 
For intrusion kill chain prevention, Amazon offers some rudimentary tools that might help in this effort, but they are bare minimum. AWS has an intrusion detection SaaS application called Amazon GuardDoc, a NetFlow collection service called VPC Flow Logs, a security cloud analytics service called AWS Security Hub, and a simplistic XDR capability called Amazon Detective. But like Microsoft, Amazon doesn't seem to embrace the intrusion kill chain idea. There is no literature that I could find that talks about how AWS embraces the strategy on their website, or even if they can map their services to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. The same goes for risk assessment offerings too. With the telemetry collected from the AWS SaaS applications I mentioned above for the intrusion kill chain strategy, plus the telemetry from the zero trust and resilience SaaS applications, you might be able to calculate the risk probability yourself, but you'll have your work cut out for you. Remember, we're trying to calculate the probability of material impact due to a cloud cyber attack within the next three years or so. There is no easy button for that within the AWS cloud offering. After deep dives into two of the three big cloud providers, Microsoft and Amazon, I have come to the preliminary conclusion that network defenders can reasonably design and deploy our resilience and zero trust strategies with some degree of rigor in cloud environments. I'll reserve judgment until I look at Google in a couple of weeks, but that looks like the general direction this analysis is taking. On the other end, cloud providers have only rudimentary capabilities for deploying the intrusion kill chain prevention and risk assessment strategies, if they have any at all. If you're going to deploy all four first principle strategies in the cloud, which you know you should do, you're going to have to supplement the cloud security SaaS offerings with other third-party solutions. That's a wrap. If you agreed or disagreed with anything I have said about Amazon AWS, hit me up on LinkedIn and we can continue the conversation there. Next week, we will invite the experts to the CyberWire hash table to see what I got wrong on this episode. You don't want to miss that. The CyberWire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions. And the mix of the episode and the remix of the theme song was done by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO PRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.